pre-planned movements is not agility. It's change of direction. You know, an extreme example is just because you're moving fast doesn't mean you're agile, right? Yes. Ever seen Stevie Wonder play the drums? <laughs> he can move, he can move his hands pretty fast. Yeah. If we can if we can train a blind person to move their hands that fast, we could also train a blind person to move their feet that fast and that coordinated. Right. Are they going to look agile when it comes to sport? No. That's because it's a closed environment. There is no there's no coupling of perception and action. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Keir Wynnum Flat. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, want to give you a quick recap of the week, or in this case, weeks that were, what's going on in my neck of the woods, and yeah, just give you a general life update, because I know I didn't do that last week. So first and foremost, crazy to think about this, episode 301. Don't worry, I'm not going to drop that number every single time, but man, it's just still crazy to think that we've crossed the 300 episode milestone. Very proud, very thankful for people like you that tune in each and every week that wanna get better. Uh, And man, I was going through some stats and just crazy, like 300 episodes, I think we're over 1.5 million downloads. I know Tim Ferriss probably does that in like one episode, but still, I'm like super happy with the fact that people are finding value in the show, that they're using it as a way to help themselves grow and evolve as trainers, coaches, rehab professionals, whatever little niche of the fitness industry they're in. I just truly appreciate your support and can't thank you enough for that. So, you know, we're going to keep plugging on here, keep making moves, but let's take a look at last week uh, because, man, a lot of stuff happened last week. Probably the most important thing, and it's hard to name one out of these three, but probably the most meaningful and important was the fact that Cade turned eight. I mean, it's just crazy to think that that guy is eight years old now. I still remember him being a little fella, uh, scooting all around. He didn't crawl the best, which is something we're still working on. I mean, he's such a great little man. He's got so much energy, so much personality, stubborn as all get out, just like his dad. Uh, And I think, you know, as easy as Kendall was, and she takes very much after my wife, Jess, I think he is my subtle reminder of what I probably was as a child. So every day I am reminded of all the grief that I probably gave my parents over the years. But man, gotta love that guy. Such an awesome little human being and just love him to death. So he had an awesome birthday, Pokemon themed, got some baseball gear. He's very into the Padres and Fernando Tatis Jr. So he got a baseball t-shirt, a baseball hat, got some Pokemon cards, Got some new games for the Nintendo Switch, so that guy had a pretty darn good good birthday overall, plus the stuff that we picked up at Brickworld the weekend before, so awesome birthday for him. Uh, as promised, little breakdown of Kendall's soccer tournament. So Cade's birthday was Friday, and then Friday night starts Kendall's soccer tournament. So first off, it's hard because the girls you know, have had school all week, and then we got to come out and be ready for a game on Friday evening, so... 545 first game average team you know a team that we beat in the regular season not by any means handily uh, it was a competitive game and this was a competitive game as well one three to one and so like in most soccer tournaments if you want to ensure that you move on you got to win both games so we won the first game three to one 
and then come back. So you got to think we're not walking off the field Friday night till like seven o'clock. And then we have to play again at 815 Saturday morning. And a lot of the girls are like, hey, you know, we have uh, sleepovers and we got stuff going on. I'm like, listen, ladies, go home, get some sleep. Luckily, we came out Saturday absolutely on fire. Uh, team that we got a draw with during the regular season, 4-4. Four, four. They, they present a few matchup issues, and there's one or two girls in particular that were tough. Uh, I would like to think my coaching plan worked to absolute success. Uh, I don't know a better way to describe that, but they have one girl in the middle that's very tough. So I pulled a uh, play out of like the football and, and basketball realms where you use a spy or you run like a box in one and you have somebody marking that person all game long. And that's what we did. Basically did our best to shut her down. One quite handily, we won 8-1. So felt good about that. 2-0. and Still didn't know if we were going to get into the final. You know, luckily got, got to move on. And then Sunday we played the team, the only team that had beat us all year. Uh, and this is just a big physical bunch of girls. They beat us 4 nothing. Now granted, it was only our second game of the year. So didn't know how the girls were going to respond considering we'd lost to them. They're just like this big physically imposing team. But we had a good game plan. We knew a couple points where we could attack them. Had two chances early on. I thought for sure like, man, we're going to get like two goals right off the bat and then just kind of cruise to victory and couldn't convert. So then as soccer goes, sometimes these games kind of go on and on. And man, the first half was like the longest 30 minutes. But 0-0 at halftime, thinking, okay, what are we going to do? We need something to happen here. And just kind of reaffirming, we're playing good defense, but we got to create chances. And we can't go right down the middle of this team. And so luckily about 10, 12 minutes in, the girls play a ball out wide. The girl plays a great ball across the middle. And my girl, Angeline, who had made so many runs over the course of the season, she's like the one girl I can consistently bank on. She's going to make the run. Now, she's not the best finisher yet, like most of them are not, right? It's very hard to finish on crosses and that sort of thing at this age. But man, I told her at the beginning of the game, I said, Angeline, I feel like you're going to get me one today. And sure enough, girl plays the ball right across the middle. Angeline bangs it in. We're up one nothing. Some scary chances along the way. We thought maybe we were going to get one more. Didn't happen, but then we shifted everybody back. We put the bus in front of the goal and uh, took out our demons on that team, won one nothing, and took home a championship. So the girls were super pumped. There's a core group that I've coached for a handful of years now, including Mike Kendall, obviously. And for them to, to be on the receiving end of a trophy and a championship ceremony, very exciting, very proud of that group. And uh, yeah, it was just a really fun weekend in that regard. So Cade's birthday, soccer tournament with three games and just all of the stress and anxiety that goes along with that. And then, yeah, we moved iFast last weekend. So like Friday, we're tearing up flooring and moving equipment and getting it ready. Saturday, I'm sitting on the site of 3.0 as they lay the flooring, as they start moving the equipment in. And then Sunday... The soccer game was right in the middle, but before we're organizing and cleaning up. And then Sunday afternoon, you know, Dave and Bill had done a ton of stuff, but I go in and I do some more organizational type stuff. So just a ton going on. And luckily we got through it all. Since then, it's just been kind of a whirlwind because when you have a weekend like that, it's not a weekend, right? There's no rest. There's no relaxation. Came back this week, had my usual coaching clients 
But then I also had Eric's as well because this is the last week till Jesse gets here. So been working a ton at iFast and, you know, obviously the coaching, but also getting it set up. Little things like trying to get our internet set up, getting our water cooler moved over, just all kinds of stuff going on. So needless to say, I have fall break. When you're listening to this, I'm going to be on fall break. But as I'm recording this, I'm getting prepped for fall break. And needless to say, I cannot wait. I'm so excited to just have a couple days to myself with my family, just decompressing, hopefully on a beach with an adult beverage in hand, just really looking forward to that. So that is the long story in as short and condensed a version as I can make it. Lots of good stuff going on, man. All kinds of things to be grateful for. You know, great kids, great soccer team. iFast is moving on up. Like all kinds of good stuff happening. But there is work still to be done. And so when I get back, that will happen. So, all right, that's enough for me. I hope you feel like you're up to speed on what's going on in my life. So we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Kier. It seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in this industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification takes the last 20 years of my life's work and puts it all into one massive course. In it, you're gonna learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. One of the best pieces of feedback I've gotten about the Complete Coach Cert is that people that train gin pop people and people that train high-level athletes and everyone in between is taking something away from the course. You also learn how to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. You're gonna learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. And last but not least, I've got an entire section on my assessment process and how to use that to write programs faster and more effectively than ever before. Now, of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now, here's the thing. Spots for the certification only open twice per year for a limited time. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will open soon. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on that insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Cert when it launches. Kier Flat is the founder of Strength Coach Network, an educational platform that helps strength and conditioning professionals to climb the coaching career ladder. Kier has worked at the elite level of multiple sports on four different continents. He is also a writer, speaker, and consultant, having presented at sporting organizations including the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, English Premier League, the English Rugby Premiership, and Argentina's Soccer Primera Division. In this show, Kier and I cover a wide range of topics. We start by discussing what he learned moving from professional to collegiate sport and why the collegiate SNC game is so tough. 
We talk about the concepts of reverse engineering performance and testing to make sure we're getting the absolute most out of our training buck. And last but not least, we talk about agility and examine the differences between change of direction drills and perception action coupling. Like I said up top, we cover a ton of different topics, but this was a really great conversation and one I'm sure you'll learn a thing or two from. But enough for me, let's do this. All right, Kier, man, thanks so much for coming back on the show here today. Super excited to chat with you. Start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. So I normally tell people I wanted to be a professional athlete. <laughs> I realized at 15 that I was five foot 10, unathletic, not brave, not skillful, <laughs> slow, slow twitch beast. Yeah, decided, all right, the closest I'm going to get to being a professional athlete is to, you know, be in the coaching world. And with, with a lot of uh, trials and tribulations along the way, I, I eventually managed to break into rugby. I did about 10 years of um, professional rugby, which is, I think, the last time I came on your podcast, I was in Tokyo yeah. finishing up a contract. Since that time, I've been in the States almost three years of which was in college football. And now I'm completely um, freelance online. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, fill in those gaps a little bit, dude. Like you go from professional rugby to collegiate SNC. Like how did all that unfold? How did that come about? Because you wanted to be in football, right? I do remember that. I, I did. Yeah, I did. And, you know, the reason was, is just that when you have that kind of like international rugby lifestyle, you know, what appears glamorous and what is what is enjoyable at the outset, which is international travel. You see a lot of places, hotels or that kind of stuff. When you do it for 26 weeks in a row, the the kind of strain on the personal life is it starts to outweigh the benefits that you get. And also just it got it got to be one of those things where I'd really enjoyed my time with Argentina. I felt like I, I got to experience a lot of stuff that not a lot of people get to experience. And then to be completely honest, the reason I was in Japan was because they offered triple what the, the team in England was offering. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go cash out there. And it's just one of those environments that really sucked every last drop of enthusiasm I had for rugby. And I thought, you know, time for a change. Let's see if I can work in the NFL. So I came over uh, to the States, started out working under Jay yeah. at uh, University of Richmond football, promptly got the girl that I was seeing in Tokyo pregnant after three three months in America. Yeah. Quickly needed uh, health insurance. So I went to work for a, a lovely guy named Eric Corum at the College of William & Mary. And pretty much the entire time I was there, I was leading the the football SNC and, and overseeing 23 sports on the Olympic side. Wow. Okay. And so now I don't do that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so talk to me about that, man. I'd love to hear more about that time as a collegiate SNC coach because, I mean, I only did like two and a half years and I wasn't even full time, right? Like I was an mm. assistant volunteer. I had my assistantship through the, the research lab. So I lived like a double life. I wasn't like a full blown collegiate SNC where you're there like sun up to sundown. So I'd love to hear about your experience and what you learned during that time period. One of the quotes that I've read, I can't remember where, when I wrote it, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote. It sums up collegiate sport for the most part perfectly. And I shared it a lot with my staff, which is given enough time and size, all institutions eventually become about the perpetuation of the institution as opposed to achieving their stated goal. Mm. So there is a huge deal of lip service that gets paid to high performance and winning and excellence in college sport 
and it's for the most part bullshit. I don't know if you can believe that. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's, it's for the most part a lie. Yeah. You can make a very clear case to administrators, to student athletes and to coaches and say, all right, you're in America, America's a meritocracy. You know, the, the more successful you are, the more resources you get, the less successful you are, the less you get. Gee, Jack Welch, bottom 10% cut every single day. But they all want to be equal. They right. all want to get the same resources. They all want to get the same face time. They all want to get the same access. Likewise, for example, the College of William & Mary. Well, all, all, no, not all. Most non-Power 5 institutions have a money problem. Most yeah, of their problems sure. are money problems in disguise. When you're in the business world, they, you know, when you have money problems, what do you do? Maximize income and cut the fat. Yes. So if, if the NCAA says you need 14 sports to maintain D1 status and you have money problems, how many sports should you run? <laughs> well, you would not think you would run less, right? Yeah. Not 23. Right. <laughs> the idea that high performance needs to be right training, right amount in front of the right athlete, high attention to detail, good coach to athlete ratios. If you're going to adopt a business style mentality to how you do things, which is, is basically high performance. You need to be giving people time to work on the system, not in the system. And you need to be uh, giving people skin in the game. Yeah. When, when the system does well, you do well. When the system does bad, you do bad. And instead, what, what is endemic in the American college system is I call it like the industrialization of, of SNC. So it's all about how many athletes can you get on the floor and off the floor per hour. You end up spending 10, 12 hours a day on the floor or doing stuff that isn't R&D. So you get better and better delivering the same program again and again. Right. And when it comes to the incentives and the rewards, you'll be working with a sport coach that when the team wins, it's big fat bonus. And when they lose, maybe they get fired. Right. With the strength coaches, especially the higher up you go, when they win, pat on the back. And when they lose, oh, you're also fired. And sometimes <laughs> you'll get fired, but you know, when it's not even your fault. So right. it it I'm not trying to sound bitter, but I think it it does a disservice to to not state the reality of things as they are and to say to people when they go into that, you must go in with your eyes open. And if you still choose to be a part of that environment is how do you mitigate against that and make yourself robust against those, against those realities? Because when you don't, I think that's when people get disappointed and they get, um, they find themselves in, in tough situations. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people go in with this like pie in the sky idea as to how it's going to look and feel, right? And it mm -hmm. only takes either one internship or a couple semesters of work and you realize, holy crap, like there's a lot of days you're up and in the facility, 5.30, 6 a.m., training people and you know it's not always seamless right it's not like you always have them back to back sometimes there's a 30 minute break or an hour break and you know next thing you know it's eight o'clock you haven't been home you know you yeah. haven't worked out yourself right yeah. like all these things and i know you've talked about this before it's like all the things that we're telling our athletes to do right like okay hey you should eat well you should work out you should get enough rest like all these things we're telling them to do we're not even doing ourselves it is the greatest indictment of a health-related field that the higher up the ladder you climb, the more unhealthy and un unhappy you get. And it's it's one thing to say, well, you know, they're paying me 250K a year, for example. If, you, right. if you're one of those lucky few, 250K, I'm going to save half my salary. 
and we'll have all this money in the bank. I'll, gi- I'll give up two years maybe to yep. do that. And I did. But it's like once you once you toss a partner and a child into that mix and you're doing it for 40K a year, it's like, oof. Yeah. It, it's an interesting life choice. Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so one thing I know that we're both into is this concept of reverse engineering sports demands, right? So we look at the yeah. sport, we figure out like the tools and the qualities necessary, and then we go from there. So I want to hear your perspective on this. Like, why do you feel this is important and how do you go about doing it? Well, the way I, I tend to sum up reverse engineering is that you remember the Bin Laden raid? Vaguely, yes. Yeah. They were there for like 45 minutes and they still made a point of when they left to take the time to blow up the Black Hawk helicopter that crashed in the, in the yard. Yeah. And the next day, the Chinese, the Russians and the Pakistanis were all on the ground there trying to investigate what they did. That tells <laughs> you the value of reverse engineering, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier to look at what works and work backwards from just, you know, trial and error and, and, and work as you go. Yeah. So if you, if you make the assumption that the most successful individuals in a given endeavor are like the ideal that you're striving towards and the best performances have a certain characteristic to them, you should try and take them apart and figure out how they work and then work backwards from that rather than trial and error. Right. And I think typically when you look, I already said it, you know, training should be right training, right amount, right time, right athlete. When we have a failure of training or an injury, it's typically a failing in that regard. You did the wrong stuff at the wrong time. You did too much of it or too little of it, or you didn't do it in such a way that you contributed to the the overall objective of training. You can be a great strength coach and actually hurt everyone else in in (laughs) performance on the field. So I'll give you a real world example. You know, I, I was speaking to someone at like a, a big uh, professional sports team recently, and there was at the end of training camp versus in season, they were still undercooking the guys by 50% as wow. to what they had to do in a game. So it's like the, the, the rationale was, well, this is the healthiest we've ever been in camp. And then the injuries start to pile up in, the, in, in season. Right. And I, I basically said, well, that's because you've taken problems that you would have had to deal with in camp and push them into the future. Right. But, you know, if, if I have to have the choice between dealing with minor problems in private or bigger ones in public, I'll, <laughs> I'll take my legs in private. So the way that I tend to, to do it is I'm going to look at what does the sport demand? And I'm going to do that through a lens mostly of high intensity sporting actions. If you look at the outcome, the, the, the importance of the outcome of the game, if you look at the fatigue, if you look at where people are getting hurt, it's not happening in the stuff that links up those high intensity events. It's right. in those high intensity contests that all the important stuff happens. So I'm looking at what are they doing? How long are they doing it for? How much rest do they get in between? Uh, and how many of them do they have to do in the course of a contest in an average contest and in the worst possible uh, scenario that they're typically going to face? Because again, those worst case scenarios may make up a fraction of the season, but typically they're happening in situations that have the most impact on the outcome of the season. Yep. And you want to be prepared. I think, one of the one of the things that I've tried to distill 
training down into is all sport is, is asking athletes questions. Do you have an answer for this? And the answer should always be, I've been here before and I know what to do. Because when you, when you haven't been there before and you don't know what to do, that's when stuff goes wrong. Right. So, so whatever it is they're going to face, we have to give them a taste of that before competition, in my opinion. Yeah. And this is where you start to get into some of the problems associated with reverse engineering for sport demands. Because in, in the head of the, the strength coach, we always want optimal. We always want to do the session that's going to result in the most improvement in speed, strength, power, and all that good stuff. Yep. Problem is the demands of a training camp, and I'll use the training camp because that's where everyone breaks in football, especially in college. The demands of a training camp so greatly exceed what is optimal for various physical qualities that if you only ever concern yourself with optimal, you're going to undercook them going into training camp and they're going to get hurt anyway. And it doesn't matter how much progress you made. Yep. So there has to be a period where you are gradually accumulating. I call them SPP efforts. You have to be accumulating up to the level of what's required in the worst time of the year. And it's not just enough that you do that. You also have to be cramming or densifying those efforts into a pattern of activity that's going to be seen in the worst time of the year. So it may be great that we do, I'll just pull a number out there, 400 meters of high-speed running, but we take an hour and a half to do it. What happens if you have to do it in 15 minutes? Right. You, you want that, you want that taste. So if we work backwards, it's the densification, it's the accumulation of SPP efforts. And then going backwards, you are going to have a period of optimal training. So you can say, oh, you know, we, we don't need to, to be ramping up every single week. We do want to develop underlying physical qualities. And I call that like the optimal block. Yep. And then of course, the problem with that development of maximal speed, strength, and power is that stuff's kind of risky because the intensity has to be quite high, especially when you're high training age athletes. So you have to earn the right to, to do that in the form of GPP training. So that's going to be preparation of tissues, development of work capacity, ingraining modes of habits. So if we work forwards, it's going to be GPP, optimal physical prep. And then in terms of the accumulation of efforts, my personal preference is to start with 50% of what I know my target to be. And I'll progress about 10 to 15% a week. And then I take that optimal number, I hold it steady, and then I just start progressively reducing those rest periods. If I'm working with sport coaches that I don't have a high degree of confidence with, I'm going to do that before camp. And if I can start to work with sport coaches and structure practice to do that in practice, so for example, scripting plays per drive, rest between drives, all this kind of stuff, you can do it uh, in camp and it's very, very efficient. And then you go into season. I love it. I love it. And you make a great point. Like, and I know you spend a lot of time in rugby, a lot of time in football. I've spent a lot of time around soccer and basketball and basketball, like one moment that just stands out. You talk about like these crazy things happening in like the times when they're most important, like Kevin Durant last year in the playoffs. I don't know if people remember this, but literally the guy played 50 minutes in like yeah. a game six. Right. And I think he had just played like 48 minutes two nights before. And this is all coming off an Achilles tendon repair. So like all of these things, like, yeah, it's like you want to be prepared for it whenever it happens. And like you said, I think too often as strength coaches, we want optimal. We want, oh, this is how it should be. Or this is what it says in this research paper. And it's like, well, that's great. But have you ever seen how your coach actually runs a training session? Very rarely does it look like it should or how it looks if you like reverse engineered it from some research article. Yeah, I, I sent it to uh, to a mate of mine. He he used to be my intern, and um, 
I said, you, you can wring your hands about what should be, or you can meet the world as it is. Yeah, I love it. I love yeah. it. Okay, so let's take this a step further. And I think it only makes sense that we make sure or try to ensure that our testing is actually reflective of the needs and the demands of the sport as well. So how can we do a better job of testing as physical preparation coaches? Well, I would, I would just encourage coaches to ask themselves, why are you testing? And the, the answers you're typically going to get is, oh, to keep them accountable, which is BS, or to know that the program is working, which is also BS. Because you can, you, can, you can gather from the training process, like, oh, the weights are getting heavier. They're getting stronger. You don't need to do <laughs> dedicated testing for that. Also stuff of like, oh, well, we, we want to know who's the best. Most strength coaches, if I said, right, here's the physical quality that I want you to, to assess your athletes on or, or grade your athletes, organize them in a line from worst to best, most strength coaches are going to do a pretty good job of being like, oh, that guy's the fastest, that guy's the second fastest and work your way down, right? Or you can do that from data that is already available. So to me, the reason that testing exists is because it gives you information that you didn't have before or to guide decision-making or to prescribe subsequent training activity. So all testing is, is a prediction about the future. If you do this, we can say with a reasonable degree of accuracy, you're going to do this in the sport. So the first thing you have to ask is what's the stuff that actually predicts performance in the sport? Right. <laughs> now in, in pure physical terms, the answer is not much. <laughs> the, the, this is the frustrating thing the, the physical barrier to entry or physical qualities do a reasonable job of saying this guy's going to play at this level this guy's going to play at this level and so on you know if I'm 5'10 and 180 pounds I'm probably not going to be an NFL lineman right. if I'm 6'5 and 310 pounds can I be an NFL lineman yes, yes. is it going to have any kind of predictive quality about my productivity Am I going to play for two years, three years, four years? Am I going to be sixth, fifth, whatever round? Am I going to play in the Hall of Fame? I'll give you an example. The average of the top 10 40-yard dashes in NFL history is 4.24 seconds. And they average, I think it's seven yards per reception. The Hall of Fame average is 4.54, and they average 15 yards per reception. <laughs> And that is the position that speed values the most along right. with cornerback. It's really counterintuitive. So that's one thing. The, the next thing, there's two things. Does it distinguish between players of a different ability? So we can say, oh, you know, we think this guy's got most potential. We're going to invest our time and resources and these guys probably not going to make it. Next is, does the, the test have any kind of value about, well, here is what, the qualities we know to be important important for the sport or position are. Here's our accepted measure of them. Okay, they do correlate to on-field metrics. And then you can start looking at them. So for example, looking at speed in rugby, for example, is speed useful in distinguishing between players of different ability? I actually think yes. It's probably one of the most sensitive things. The next thing you need to do is look at, does it have diagnostic value? So for example, you and I can both do vertical jumps right now because we're young and super athletic. We're both going to jump 40 inches, but you may do it with a very shallow knee bend and a very kind of like 
high force, low duration strategy to create that impulse. I may do it with a very, very deep knee bend and produce that force more gradually and achieve the same output, but we've done so via very different strategies. So we're not just interested in what did you do? We're interested in how did you do it and why? Because the training intervention that's going to get you to 45 inches and me to 45 inches is going to be very, very different. And then once we have done that, then we can start to look at testing that says, well, okay, this is a value. It distinguishes between athletes of, of different ability. It has some predictive value in terms of performance. It tells us what we need to do. And here are the numbers that you need to base that off. Mm. So for example, we could say, I want to improve reactive ability in jumps. So we may do a jump assessment where I chuck you off progressively to all the boxes and look at your contact time and subsequent jump height. I'm going to arrive at an optimal box height for you that's going to minimize that ground contact time. Yep. That would be an example of something that is prescriptive in nature. I love that. Running a 300 for football does not distinguish between athletes of different ability. It does not predict any meaningful metric. It does not tell you actually what they, or what capacity they have because if the test is not maximal, it does not give you information. Also, if it's a pass fail, it's like having an IQ test that labels people smart or dumb. <laughs> and what, what do you program off? Well, what does it tell you to do? Nothing. Right. So that would be to me an example of a, a wasted time with regards to testing. Yeah. It's funny. You were talking about this and I'm just thinking back through all of the sport coaches that I've worked with in soccer and their various approaches, you know, in, in football, it's the 300 yard shuttle, right? Like that's yeah. the standard goal. It's, it's about to be the tribe test though. It's, yeah. We're getting that way. Yeah, you're getting there. <laughs> you're getting there, but it, it's a yo-yo, right? Or it's like a beep test. And so I love this idea of it's got to tell you something you don't know, because I very clearly remember our second year we had the club first day in, you do all the testing, right? And I remember taking these guys through the beep test. And before we even do the beep test, the coaches are standing on the side like that guy's fat, that guy's fat, that guy's fat, that guy's in shape. But we make him do the test anyway, right? And then all that does is confirm that guy's fat. He's not in shape. Now we go... And, and we learn nothing from it, right? Other than the yeah. fact that he's in the kind of shape that we thought he was in and yeah. gave us no prescriptive value, right? So yeah. it's like, okay, so now we have to do another test that's actually giving us some feedback as to how to prescribe ways to get this guy in better shape. But if, if they played a game, could you predict who's going who's gonna to kill it in the game? Like, this is, this is what sums it up for me. You remember when Marshall and Lynch came back in the playoffs for the Seahawks? Yes. They picked him off the street. Yeah. <laughs> Did he look in shape to you? I don't believe no. so. No. Could could he still hang? I mean, Absolutely. So that's Lynch. that's yeah. That's the difference. It's like you could go you could go find a running back more in shape than Marshall and Lynch at the end of his career in probably any Power Five college program in the country. Yeah. And yet they're still they're still picking Marshall and Lynch when they're in a pinch. Yeah. Rhyming. Rhyming. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. Okay. So we've talked testing. Something else that I know you're diving into, uh, I feel like we have a lot of parallels, but you're really into agility training. And I think yeah. agility training, speed training is super fascinating. I'd love to know, again, your opinion here. What are we doing well in the realm of agility training? How have we improved and how can we continue to get better going forward? 
I mean, what, what we're doing well is that people are starting to understand that pre-planned movements is not agility. It's change of direction. Right. So, you know, an extreme example is just because you're moving fast doesn't mean you're agile, right? Yes. So ever seen Stevie Wonder play the drums? <laughs> he can move, he can move his hands pretty fast yeah. if we can if we can train a blind person to move their hands that fast we could also train a blind person to move their feet that fast and that coordinated right are they going to look agile when it comes to sport no that's because it's a closed environment there is no there's no coupling of perception and action so we've looked at that we've looked at the fact that when you throw in a reactive component to change of direction tasks i'll, I'll call it agility it's not true agility but i'll you know, a reactive component to agility tasks that the forces go up, the rates of injury go up, which means the risk goes up. So really it is going to be a truer approximation of what they're exposed to in the sport. And we're probably going to do a better job of preparing athletes by exposing them to those scenarios. The problem is, is that if you look at agility through the context of the OODA loop, which is you first have to gather perceptual information via the senses, primarily the eyes, but you know, the ears, you know, pressure through your skin. Like for example, wind, you can have like a kinesthetic awareness of like an opponent pushing into you, your balance, all this kind of stuff. Yep. Once you've done that, you have to derive meaning from it. I, I use the analogy when I first moved to Tokyo, you don't know what it is you're supposed to pay attention to or ignore. So it's just exhausting walking around because it's not like the West where ignore, 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 pay attention to this. You're looking at everything like right. tiring, right? right? So you have to know what's important and what's not. Once you've done that, you have to be able to infer the intent of an opponent. Based on my experience of playing against you, I know your tendencies are this. He likes to do this. When you beat me before, it was because you sold me on what I thought you were going to do and you pulled the rug from underneath me and did something else. Based on that and my experience, my training in the sport, I know that I have option one, two, three, four, five, whatever available to me to counteract what you're trying to do or to win the one-on-one -on -one contest that's about to happen. And I'm going to run that, that simulation in my head. This one's going to be the best one and I'm going to select it. And then I have to do the movement piece, which is, you know, it's only a quarter of agility and I have to be able to execute it quickly. I close my OODA loop. I force you to reset yours because you're now working with a model of reality that doesn't exist. And it just goes around like that. Yep. The problem with, I call them general reactive tasks. If I give you a bouncy ball that goes off in all different directions, or if I point a given direction or I put up a color cone, I am feeding you perceptual information that has no resemblance of the sport whatsoever. So you are strengthening your ability to pick up environmental cues that will not be found in the sport. And when we do a, a general reactive task, I can go left, I can go right. And I know in advance, it's going to be one of those two options and I have to pick. If I take a combat sport example and say, oh, I've got this guy standing in front of me. He could shoot a double. He could shoot a single. He could try and snap me down. And I'm going to have to pick up on those cues. And then when I try and stop him or counter, he's going to counter my counter. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's just a, a level of complexity that is so far removed from those exercises 
that it's it's just going to be insufficient preparation. I actually do do them as a like a graded exposure. So initially, I'm going to do extensive movement, build up to full speed, change of direction in a closed environment. Then we're going to do general reactive stuff for the reasons that I, I mentioned. And then we're going to start getting to realistic sport scenarios. Firstly, 1v1 with tight constraints. Yep. Then we're going to start to expand it a bit more chaos, a bit more, a few more pieces of information to attend to on both sides. So when you add two opponents, that's now two pieces of information or two things you have to pay attention to. Right. But when you add supporting players on your side, that's also the same because what I'm going to do as a ball carrier is going to vary according to my positioning and timing related to you. So yep. it gets even more difficult. And then you can start to go from there. So, you know, 1v1, small group, large group, and then into the team scenario. That's how I like to progress it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this reminds me too of, I forget the research. I'm not a huge research guy, but, you know, I read enough and stay abreast enough. But, you know, I remember they looked at like the physical qualities comparing high level, like D1 football players and NFL yeah. players. And yeah. if you look at like the physical attributes, speed, yeah. strength, size, like a lot of them are very comparable. But what yeah. distinguished? Well, it's all those perception based things, right? Like they know yeah. the play before it's going to happen or they just they've been in that environment and they know this guy's going to do this. This guy's going to do that. So their awareness about situations and context gives them such a huge advantage when it comes to actually playing in a game. Don't hurt your back picking up this name that I'm about to drop, but I, I was in conversation <laughs> with, with uh, Barty Morris and he said yeah. the body will only move at the speed that the brain is able to process and make decisions. So, and this is again, why you, you mentioned you have these, these college guys that they have all the time in the world and physically they're, you know, a first round draft pick is going to be better than a 10 year vet. Right. But they step up that level and all of a sudden it slows down. It's because people are better able to, to misdirect and hide their intent. There's, there's more stimuli to attend to. You have less time. So you start to force errors. Yep. And it's also the same reason why those vet players are able to slow the aging process and appear just as good physically as the younger guys is because they're so much better in that regard. They have those smaller losses. Like I call game speed, speed potential minus losses to the game. And they uh, minimize those losses. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Man. So I think this fits nicely here. Talk to me about the massive impact those sand pits are making on our athletes agility. What, you know, what <laughs> is, what is an injury? Injury is imbalance between demands placed on a tissue and the capacity of the tissue to resist that demand. And it can be systemic or it can be local. So what increases tissue demand or what, what, yeah. What increases tissue demand force basically yeah. <laughs> more, more force for the same volume, more risk of injury. Yep. So our solution to prepare athletes for the demands of sport is to give them less than the demands of sport. And these will be the same coaches that will tell you, oh, we need to bleed on the training field and laugh on the battlefield. <laughs> yeah. <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah. And and once once you start to to put athletes on a, a moving surface, the timing, the coordination, the degree of, of tension that you're keeping in that muscle tendon unit just goes out the window. Yeah. The skill of being able to move quickly on sand is very, very different from the skill of 
moving optimally on grass or on a track. So again, it's like, if you are trying to prepare tissues to move on a, you know, a turf or a grass field and to optimally produce force in that context, why would you rob athletes of the chance to practice that, albeit in a watered down version if needed? Right. Yeah. It just looks better on social media. Yeah. Well, and look, like we could have a whole side discussion on that, like what actually gets done behind the scenes and the real work versus, you know, what makes the highlight real and what new exercise or what new training modality somebody is using today to garner more likes and more, uh, more comments on the social, right? Yeah. Yeah. To go full circle. That is one thing that I hate is, is recruiting. Yeah. They, they play the game. I think, you know, what you know, whenever a player puts, well, blessed to receive my first offer or honored to receive my first offer from so-and-so. And I'm like, if you're that honored, accept. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's it, I, I wouldn't be like, oh, blessed to receive my first offer of dinner with Naomi Campbell. I'm going to go to dinner with Naomi Campbell. All right. And um, when, when schools really lay it on thick and uh, they just like bend over backwards, like, oh, we need this kid. And they, they basically lie. That the problem is you have these kids that have this huge inflated sense of their importance to a program turn up and they're like, what happened? I thought they wanted me. And then, right. then it's like, I, I think programs could save a, a lot of time by being honest and actually setting up a velvet rope and saying, we're the catch. Here's the standards that we expect of you. If that sounds like you apply to, to come here. And if not, we don't want you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like uh, the meme that you had up the other day with squid game. You know, yeah. like talking about, you know, how excited we are to oh, have we have, you. We have a ton of fun here. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an amazing experience. And then, oh, except for the snipers that are going to shoot at you and everything <laughs> else that's going on. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay, so I hate these types of questions, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. What's one piece of advice you'd give to an up-and-coming strength and conditioning coach to be more successful throughout their career. And I worded it like this because you see it, right? Like we see the kids that are in here for a couple years or they do it for like three to five years and they're like, man, this is hard. I don't like this. I'm burnout, whatever. So if they want to make a career out of this, what's one or two piece of advice you give them? The, the person who in any negotiation or disagreement, the person who's willing to blow it up or walk away typically wins, right? So yep. <laughs> the reason you have these imbalances in the power dynamics between institutions and coaches is that they know they've got you. Yep. So you have to try, I think, try and structure your life in such a way that you could walk away tomorrow and not feel it. And that means that, you know, have you ever heard the, the business that has one customer is run by an idiot. <laughs> now, if, if, yep. if, you're in the, if you're in the business of you, you know, how many customers do you have? Your employer, one. Business is run by an idiot. Right. If you can start to build other revenue streams uh, into your life and it gets a whole lot easier to say, no, you're going to respect my family time. I'm going to be at work between these hours and these hours. And if you don't like it, cool. And as a side benefit, understanding what is required to, to build income outside of your day job 
you learn a whole lot about budgeting, efficiency, scale. And it just so happens that those things are extremely useful when you're trying to run a department. Yeah. 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 I love that. And, and I think you run a business, so you know this, and I obviously- I try. I try. Yeah. <laughs> I've run a couple as well. It's amazing, like, when you talk about, too, like, working in versus working on the business, like- as you start to work on the business and you understand things that are successful in business, how many of those readily apply and carry over to sport, whether it's yeah. running a department, running a team, managing like KPIs, all that, like all of these things work. And it's funny because I feel like in SNC, we're so apt to think like we have all the solutions, like yeah. nobody else out there could have thought of something else when it's like, Hey yeah. man, these people are in the business of making money. Like, why don't we learn from them? And then take yeah. some of those strategies and apply them to what we're doing. And, and there is such a disconnect between, you know, obviously in America, we celebrate tech, the Tim Ferrises of the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. It's like, oh, how, how can you get more from less? Yep. How, how can you four hour work week? <laughs> You'll have people in the college system reading the four hour work week and say, and, and then you say to them like, why is it that we've done six groups today? Why don't we just move things around and do two groups? And it's, it's, it's the, the, the anxiety from that comes from not being seen to be working hard. Yeah. Yeah. At, which is, which is why you have these people that they'll say, you are responsible for the output of this department as a manager, but how are you supposed to do that? If you're always working with teams, it should be that the, the director of strength and conditioning in theory, should work with no teams. Yeah. Howard Schultz was not a barista making uh, <laughs> lattes. He was working on the business. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Last but not least, we got our lightning round. So I got five questions for you today. Excited yep. about these. Number one, what have you learned from your time grappling? I know you're really into that right now. So what have you learned from that? Sportmaster is everything. Yeah. I have forgotten more about strength and conditioning than every single person that I roll with at my gym. And, you know, once there's only so many times you can uh, get beaten up by a 140 pound IT worker and keep kidding yourself that you're what you're good at is the magic piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Okay. Number two, I know you've been doing a ton on the business side and we talked a little bit about that. What are yep. maybe one or two lessons that you've learned along the way? Numbers, numbers, you know, all businesses, successful ones at least that don't have infinite funding is built on the understanding that lifetime value exceeds cost per acquisition. And once that number is bigger than the other number, in theory, you can chuck an infinite amount of money at the problem to, to grow a more profitable business. Now, obviously you want to maximize the LTV and minimize the, the CPA, but I myself for a long time, and I'm sure you know a lot of other people. If you ask them those numbers, like, what's your LTV? They have no idea. Yeah. And you say, all right, what's your CPA? They have no idea. And right. it's like, well, how do, you, how, do, how do you know to grow it? In theory, you could be spending double the money and, and growing twice as fast. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Number three, when are you getting back into rugby? Never. <laughs> Done. No, never. Never. It's one of those things where it, it's just a larger version of what happened after the World Cup. So we... Went to the World Cup. It was a home World Cup for me. It was in England. It had been a tough, tough five years. And I remember we were playing at Wembley against the All Blacks. 
90,000 people went out absolutely insane. It will live with me until I die. And after the World Cup, I went to Japan. It's funny. This is, this is what I negotiated them up to, to be a high performance director for a four year cycle after that World Cup performance, 50 grand. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, the first year in Japan, they said, we want you to come back. And they said, name your price. I said, all right, 150, no taxes, house, car, medical insurance, the lot. They said, done. Right? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, I don't want to poison those memories because I thought they're not going to make another semifinal and they, they didn't even make it out of the group stage. So I knew the groups. Right. I thought it's not going to go as well. I'm going to be cleaning up the mess of a year. I've got those memories. I've taken from it what I want and I don't want to become that guy that's in his you know, 40s, 50s, 60s doing the same old thing, just trying to hold on to, to what had come before. Right. And that was why I, I didn't go back. I wanted to put it to bed and move on to something else. And I'm like that with rugby in general. I'm, I'm okay with it. And I would rather expand my horizons a little bit. And I, I turned down a job last year in, in American rugby. And at that time, I've, I'd watched one game of rugby in three or four years. Three oh, wow. years. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen one, one game on the TV. And I thought, mm. turn this job down, watched them play in person, and felt nothing. And I thought, right decision. So I'm, yeah. I'm done. I love it. I, yeah. I just love that you know where you're at, man. Okay. So number four, we have a guy trained at our gym for a handful of years. He's making the, the transition, right? They're doing yeah. like this whole, I can't remember the name of it. It's rugby town, but they're doing this whole conversion of these guys that are like right there, but not NFL caliber guys transitioning them into rugby. So, yeah. if, and I think you're going to see more of this, right? Because there's a finite yeah. number of jobs in the NFL. So yeah. what advice would you give for a former football player who wants to try their hand at rugby? I mean, on, on the physical side, it's this is where people, I, I think, mistake the differences between the sports as like American prowess. They're, they're, they're so much bigger. They're so much more powerful. They're right. so faster. But it's like the, the, bio, the bioenergetics of football lend themselves to that. It doesn't right. matter if you're 360 pounds when you only, you, you're playing six, five second plays per drive. Right. Right. <laughs> so your that aerobic piece is going to have to come up significantly. Yep. You're probably, if you're a lineman, you're definitely going to have to lose, to, to lose weight. You probably have to it, it be mentally okay with sacrificing some of those outputs to get the repeatability yep. and the capacity. And then ultimately it just comes down to, the amount of training time and effort that has to be dedicated to develop a quality versus to simply retain a quality is very, very different. So you need to mentally get to a place where the amount of dedicated physical prep that you're going to do is going to be absolutely minuscule. Yeah. Because if you look at traffic going in the opposite direction, the reason guys are failing, and I used to work with one of them, the guy that builds, uh, he was at the same club as me. The reason they're failing is they just don't know what they're doing. They just don't have that sport mastery. Right. So the, the likelihood is it's going to be true moving in the opposite direction. So it's like if there's a limited number of hours in the day, week, month, whatever, it should be a tiny, tiny piece of physical and then trying to accelerate that sport. process of becoming a master of sport. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Last one. Number five. What's next for Keir Flat? 
Um, well, we released Strength Coach Network Fundamentals in May. Fundamentals 2 is going to drop at Thanksgiving because I'm cynical and there's going to be a lot of idle football coaches around then. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to fill their time. Yeah, and then uh, my kid gets back from uh, Tokyo on the 12th. So I'm nice. just going to be uh, super busy in that regard. And yeah, just trying to keep keep growing um, membership and, and influence and trying to, I always said to my assistants, don't tell me about the pain of labor. Give me the baby. I can, I can sit here and complain about, oh, the NSCA did this, the CSCCA did this, or I can say, all right, here's how I think it should be and try and build it. Right. I love that, yep. man. Well, Kier, always awesome catching up with you. Love our little chats. Love your, Thanks, I love your social media feed, honestly. Like there are some people that just, troll constantly and it bothers me but your trolling is very classy it's always very well pointed like i feel like you're always kind of on your mark with this i I reel them in i reel them in with the memes and then i hit them with the education that's right there is a strategy there is a strategy (laughs) i love it man you're killing it so kier where can uh the listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing uh so i like if you just want the straight education business stuff if you just search strength coach network on any of the platforms okay i'm i'm not kind of like front of camera on that yeah if you if you like memes the japanese emperor that's my child jujitsu all that other <laughs> stuff you can search for rugby strength coach that's me all right man well we'll make sure yeah. we get links in the show notes but again kier awesome catching up man appreciate it thanks for having me thanks my friend that does it for this week's show with Kier really hope you enjoyed it like I said up top I really enjoy talking with him we have a lot of similar viewpoints and takes on how training for sports should be done so I enjoy talking with him I love the banter and the back and forth it's always a very easy conversation and I really hope you learned a thing or two from our talk so before I let you go I got one or two small asks for you number one if you're not already subscribed to the show please do that right now doesn't matter where you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, wherever you can consume podcasts, go there right now, subscribe to the show, so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. If you are already subscribed, thank you so much, truly appreciate it. Go one step further, go on to iTunes, give me a rating and a review. Those are one of the most surefire ways to make sure the show gets in front of more trainers, coaches, rehab professionals, people like you that want to level up their game. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.